sermon tonight. It's been a while since I've been this excited about preaching on a specific topic. In fact, I've never preached on this topic before in any gospel meeting I've ever preached. But rather than you thinking of yourselves as my guinea pigs, um, I think since this morning we're talking about growing, tonight I hope that we are going to do some growing. Because we're going to do an overview of the most difficult book in the whole Bible, the book of Revelation. And Lord willing, tonight we are going to simplify this for everybody who walks out of here tonight. You should be able to understand the overall message of this book. You should be able to understand the type of language that is used in this book. It's my purpose tonight to get it down to a level where everybody can understand it. Not that I'm on a higher level by any means. I have benefited from other people's teachings, from other people's studies, and I hope that maybe you can benefit from some of my studies as well. So. When was this book written? This is important because some of the passages, you might get the wrong idea about what it's saying if you don't understand when it was written. By the way, I encourage you to, to get a Bible. Uh, we're, I tried to put my Bible app on the screen, but this screen is not compatible with my Bible app on my PC. I wanted to just show you stuff really quick on the screen. But if you want to, go ahead and be in Revelation. And then the book of Daniels. Okay, so if you got a marker, you may want to put it on Daniels, and we're going to come to that uh, in a little while. But I do have this verse on the screen, Revelation 17, 10, 11. It says, There are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is. And the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. And he is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. All right. You have to really slow down to make sure that we understand what this is talking about. But if we start with Augustus Caesar and we count down, we get to... The first five being fallen would be Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. And therefore, I would affirm that this book was written during the reign of Vespasian. And I believe it was written before A.D. 70. Now, a lot of sound Christians believe that it was written later than A.D. 70. Okay? I'm not going to try to uh, give you the pros and cons of both views. I'm just going to tell you what I understand, and I'm going to give you the reasons why I understand it. For the sake of time, I've left out a few slides here. I was trying, I was debating over whether or not to study these. If we have time, I will get to those. If you're taking notes, there are some scriptures in the Bible. Uh, if you want to look at Micah 7.15 real quick, uh, that's a really interesting verse. Micah 7.15 is talking about according to the days of thy coming out of Egypt, will I show them wondrous things. You know what that context is about? It's talking about the coming of the Messiah in the first century A.D. 
And yet it says, according to the days of thy coming out of Egypt. Now, here's a question. How long was it from the time that they came out of Egypt until they entered the promised land? Forty years. I don't really want you to speak out. I'm just getting you to think. Okay? Forty years. Well, if Jesus began his ministry in A.D. 30, then 40 years would end in A.D. 70. It's interesting. I'm not saying that Micah 7.15 absolutely proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that miracles only lasted until A.D. 70, but that's one piece of the evidence. I would also put Daniel 9, 24 through 26 together with that. I would put Zechariah 13, 1 through 3 together with that. And by the way, Micah 7.15 where it talks about and I will show them wondrous things. That Hebrew word, wondrous things, is the same word that's used in Exodus 3 about the miracles that Moses did by the power of God. So Micah is about 700 B.C. Moses was about 1500 B.C. And Micah is foretelling of a time coming in the future of the Messiah according to the days of God's people coming out of Egypt where they will see amazing things like during the time of Moses. Miraculous things. Jesus is going to raise the dead. Jesus is going to heal the blind. Jesus is going to heal the lepers. He's going to do all kinds of amazing things and he himself is going to be raised from the dead. Now, the eighth Domitian. If you've ever studied history, Domitian was one of the most cruel emperors, Caesar, of the Roman Empire, especially towards the Lord's church. And do you see what he's called here? The beast is the eighth. Now, look at Revelation 17 in your Bible, because I don't have this on the screen. I want to show you something. Okay, we've got 10 and 11 on the screen, but let's read 12 through 14. And the 10 horns which thou sawest are 10 kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. All right there. Who's the beast? The eighth, which I am affirming that is Domitian. Okay, verse 13. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Who is that? Domitian. All of these former, all their power is going to culminate in the beast. He is going to be the enemy of God's people. In fact, look at verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. Who is the war between the beast and the Lamb? Is it literally a beast? No. Is it literally a Lamb? Is Jesus a Lamb? With wool? No. We're talking about symbolic language. And yet, this is kind of giving you a little bit of the clues about what this book is about. So, what is it about? How can we understand this book that has intimidated so many people for so long? First of all, I'll just tell you, the key to unlocking the book of Revelation is in the very first verse of the book of Revelation. Go back to that first verse again. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. <clears throat> if you ever get confused about what the book of Revelation is about, let's say you get bogged down in one of the later chapters about the Battle of Armageddon, and you're like, oh, what is this talking about? Go back to the first verse. Because the first verse is going to remind you every time what this book is about. Number one, it's not talking about the hidden. The word revelation is the opposite of something that is hidden. Apa. That is a Greek preposition that means away from. So you've heard of apostles. That word apostle means someone who is sent away. Apocalypsis means we're going to take the covering away. And we're going to reveal amazing things from the Word of God. It does not mean hidden. This is meant to be understood. But you're not going to understand the book of Revelation if you've never studied the Old Testament prophets. I'll just, I'm just going to step out there and just say, you cannot understand this book without studying books like Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Those are the key. This book was written in code language to people who knew the Old Testament. They had the key. They had the code language. They had the translator, the ability to translate it, to understand it, when what if Caesar got his hands on this a copy of the book of Revelation? And he's reading about all these vials and bowls and, and all these different things that he's never heard of before, and all these beasts that he's never heard of before, and he's like, this makes no sense to me. Oh, but somebody who has read the book of Daniel, wait a minute. This sounds exactly like something I read in the book of Daniel. Let me see if I can go back and find that. And sure enough, it is exactly I'm going to show you when we get to that. I'm not making fun of anybody, but I hear a lot of members of the church say the book of Revelations. Well, that's kind of like saying, I'm going to read the book of Matthews. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but there's a reason why it's singular, and it's important. First of all, every letter of the Word of God is inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture. That means every single letter. And remember in Galatians 3.16, Paul makes a doctrinal argument over the letter S. Not unto seeds, as unto many, but seed as one. There can be a doctrinal, a solid doctrinal argument built upon, or proposition, if you don't like the word argument, built upon one letter. Because every letter came from God. And there's a reason why it's either there or it's not there. We're not talking about a book that's full of 22 revelations. 22 chapters, 22 revelations. 
we're talking about one revelation that transpires over 22 chapters, and it's all the same message. When you get into chapter 20, and you start reading about the thousand years, and the lake of fire, and all that, that is not a different message than what you've been reading about in 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. It is the same. Number two, this book is signified, John says. In the very first verse, he tells you that if you are trying to make all this literal, you are making a huge mistake. That is a huge mistake, and guess what? That is the most common mistake made, not only in the denominations, but in the Lord's church. I'm not saying that somebody who makes some of this literal in the Lord's church, I'm not saying that they need to be marked and aborted and all that, but I'm going to present the way I believe this is correctly to be understood. That's my job to do that. So, signified. Okay, well, what's an example of that? Well, look at Revelation 1 and look at verse 20, for example. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest at my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Oh, so it's not literally seven candlesticks? Nope. Oh, it's not literally seven stars? Nope. It's symbolic of something else. And that's going to be throughout this book. In fact, go back to verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, that's symbolic, but also out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now what do you think that is? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That is the word of God. In fact, he's still talking about this sword in chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things, saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. And verse 16, 2.16, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. But how far do we go with this? Go all the way over to chapter 19. chapter 19 and look at verse 15 and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword well who is this go back to verse 13 and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God in the beginning was the word the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is Christ. In verse 13, he's called the Word of God. And in verse 15, it's no coincidence that there's a sword coming out of his mouth because that is the Word of 
God coming out of his mouth. But 1921 is where we're going with this. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So here's the question. Is the sword in chapter 1 literal or figurative? And we would say figurative. It's the word of God. Is the sword in chapter 2 literal or figurative? Figurative. It's the word of God. Is the sword in chapter 19, 21, literal? No, it's not literal. Oh, but when we get to chapter 20, now we're going to make everything literal. When we get to chapter 20, the thousand years suddenly becomes literal. And the, the beast and all these kinds of things that we're reading about, the first resurrection, oh, that's a literal resurrection, they say. Wait a minute. Who gave you the authority to change this book into literal things when John said it is signified? And where do we arbitrarily change from figurative to literal and back to figurative and literal? Do you see how confusing all that gets? It's not confusing because you keep it figurative. And if you will keep it figurative, that's how you're going to understand what this book is really about. But as soon as you start making things literal, you're gone. You lost it. You got off track. You do not understand what this book is talking about. Now, there's a lot of uh, our friends in various denominations who say, well, we don't believe what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Revelation 7 and 14. What is that? Well, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they say the 144,000 is a literal number, and that's the only people who are going to be in heaven. 144,000. Because Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, hey, that's what it says. 144,000, but our Baptist friends and Methodist friends and Presbyterian friends and other denominations like that, they say, no, that's silly. But when they get to chapter 20, you know what they do with the word thousand? They make it literal. They're making the same mistake as the Jehovah's Witnesses do in chapter 7 and 14. Do you understand? Numbers have meanings in the Bible. Not all numbers, but especially in a prophetic book like this, numbers mean something. The number seven, we already saw it several times, it means complete, perfect. The seven spirits which are before the throne of God, the seven angels, the seven candlesticks, seven, seven, seven. But also there's another number, the symbolic 10. 10 is also a symbol for being complete. Well, you know what the word 1,000, you know what the number 1,000 is? It's a multiple of 10. 10 times 10 is 100 times 10 is 1,000. So basically, it's like saying complete, complete, complete. Not just 10, but really complete. Complete, complete, complete. 
got to keep that in mind when we're talking about things like this. Look at Revelation 20 and verse 12. I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades, the original word is Hades, not Gehenna, hell, delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Somebody says, that's literally the day of judgment. Listen to me. Believe that you've got some problems. Number one, you all of a sudden you switched to literalism. You weren't supposed to do that. Now this is where this is where some people think, oh, I don't know if this is right here. This, Jason, you're really you're really pushing the envelope here. Okay, if you stick with me, you're going to see it. You're going to see it yourself. You'll understand. Some questions for you. 2011, we didn't read it. The earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. Do you know where that's found originally? Daniel 2.35. I'm going to have to hope that many of you have already studied the image of Daniel chapter 2 with the four parts. I've got it. Right here, actually. Daniel 2. Thou, O king, art this head of gold. That's what Daniel told the king of Babylon. But after thee shall arise another kingdom after thee, and another kingdom, and another kingdom. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Daniel 2. This is Daniel 2. So we know just from history, or we, we know from the text, Daniel said, this is Babylon. When, if you study history, what major world power came after Babylon? The Medes and the Persians. Cyrus the Great. It was prophesied, by the way, by Isaiah before he ever came along in Isaiah 44, 28. Who came after them? Alexander the Great. Greece. Who came after Greece? The next major world empire was Rome. And during the days of the fourth world kingdom, that's when God was going to set up his kingdom. And so guess what John the baptizer is saying when he starts preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And guess what Jesus is preaching in Matthew 4, 17? And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say... Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. What if they said, uh, what kingdom, Jesus? Have you never read the book of Daniel? Have you never read about the fourth kingdom and that God was going to set up his kingdom during the fourth kingdom? And here comes John during the days of the Roman Empire preaching the coming of the kingdom and Jesus, and then Jesus chooses 12, and guess what he tells the 12 to preach? 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 10. And then he gets 70 disciples. And guess what he tells the 70 disciples to preach? The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Luke 10. Okay? So we know that's talking about Rome. Anybody who understands this at all, there's no other way to explain this. Well, wait a minute. Maybe we haven't studied Daniel 7 as much as we've studied Daniel 2. Did you know the same four kingdoms are in Daniel 7 represented by a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dreadful beast? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the son of matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven drove, strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from the other. The first was like a lion. Skip down to verse 5. The second beast was like to a bear. Skip down to verse 6. And then I behold another like a leopard. And then verse 7, a beast dreadful and terrible. There's only one other place in the Bible where you're going to find those three animals together. Revelation 13. Do you know what? If, if you read Revelation 13 for the first time and you know the Old Testament scriptures, your mind is going to say, wait a minute, I've seen those exact same beasts in the book of Daniel. So if we can figure out what Daniel 7 is talking about, that may help us understand what the book of Revelation is talking about. But look, this is what it's talking about. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. In verse 4, Daniel 7, a lion had eagle's wings. Do you know there's a prophecy during Moses' day in Deuteronomy 28:49, where it says that a kingdom is going to come with eagle's wings and they're going to come and destroy. You know who that is? Babylon is going to destroy Jerusalem. In 586 B.C., and yet Moses in 1450 B.C. was foretelling it by the power of God. So verse 4 here, eagle's wings. Hey, I read that in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, 49. What about verse 5? A bear? Look what it says. It's raised up on one side. There's two sides to this beast. Two arms in Daniel 2. But now in Daniel 7, you've got a bear raised up on one side. Why is that? Because the Persians are going to become more powerful than the Medes. And so when you read the book of Esther, who are you reading about? The king of Persia. Not the king of Media, the king of Persia. So this bear represents the Medes and the Persians. And then the next kingdom coming after that, verse 6, a leopard, it says, 
that it had four wings. Who was known to conquer the known world faster than anybody else? Alexander the Great. He was a young man. He didn't even live very long, actually. But four wings, he is taking over everything, and yet what he did and his power does not match up to this last beast. And in verse 7, what kind of teeth does it say that beast has? It says, I am. See this? In Daniel 2, the fourth kingdom is represented by iron. I'm telling you, Daniel 7 is talking about the same thing Daniel 2 is talking about, but it's using different pictures. And something about this is connected to the book of Revelation. Something here is a key to understanding the book of Revelation. And so when you get to Revelation 20, verse 11, guess what John does? He quotes from Daniel chapter 2. Another link to Daniel. Daniel 2.35. Let's go back to what we were talking about. Number two, why are only the dead being judged in Revelation 20? I thought when Christ comes back in the literal judgment day, 2 Timothy 4.1 says he will judge the quick and the dead. Because when Christ comes back, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Who is the them? The dead in Christ. And we'll all go to the judgment day at that point. If we're talking about the literal day of judgment, we're not just talking about dead people being judged. So why is there no hint in Revelation 20 of the living being judged? I'll tell you why. Because we're talking about judgment from Rome. We're not talking about the final day of judgment. Turn to Revelation 17. Look at verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment. The judgment of the great poor that sitteth upon many waters. What kind of judgment are we talking about in chapter 17? A judgment of everybody in the world who's ever lived? No. Look at verse 9, Revelation 17, 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Did you know the city of Rome is known as the city on seven hills? That's what it was famously called, the city on seven hills. So if 
chapter 17, verse 1, we're talking about judgment upon that woman. We're talking about the woman sitting on seven hills. We're talking about judgment on Rome. Not the final day of judgment. <coughs> Stick with me. Some of you may have doubts about the veracity of this, the validity of this. We're going to give more and more and more until it's undeniable. Number three, why are some of the dead in the sea? And some are coming out of Hades. Do you think if somebody dies in the ocean, that his spirit's going to remain in the ocean? Of course not. That's silly. So then what is this talking about? This is not literal. It's not literal. What is the sea in previous places? Look at Revelation 17, and if you're still there, do you remember what the woman was sitting on at the end of verse 1 in Revelation 17? She was sitting upon many waters. Look at verse 15, 17, 15. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. You know what the sea is? It's the wicked people of Domitian's day. And God's going to judge. He's going to bring judgment upon wicked Rome, especially in the form of Domitian. Remember, in 1714 here, there's a war going on between the eighth king and the Lamb of God. The eighth king, do you know what he told people? I am God. Emperor worship. And in fact, you must bow down and worship me. I am Caesar. I am God. From the very beginning of this book, you know what Jesus is doing? He's establishing his deity. He's saying, you are not God. I am the Almighty Revelation 1.8, from the very beginning, Jesus is fighting against this corrupt emperor worship. Revelation 1.8, Jesus speaks and he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Not the beast. Revelation chapter 20. Uh, by the way, yeah, I already mentioned Hades. <coughs> Are death and Hades being personified here? Did you know in Revelation chapter 6, you know what death is doing? Death is riding on a horse. Do you think death can literally hop up on a horse and ride? No. But guess who's with death in chapter 6? 
Hades is with him. Like there are two men. But when we get here into chapter 20, are we supposed to now make that literal when it was not literal previously? In Isaiah chapter 28, I'm running out of time here. In Isaiah 28, verses 15 through 18, Isaiah talks about death and Sheol. You have made a covenant with death and Sheol, Israel. What is he talking about? Assyria. This language right here, if you're familiar with Isaiah 28, that would, that would come into your memory. That sounds like Isaiah 28. Number five, why is the city in Revelation 21 coming down out of heaven if the city is heaven? You know, sometimes members of the Lord's church sing a song about the city, this city, and they say that's heaven. Did you know it's not heaven? Revelation 21, let's start reading in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. No more sea. Remember the sea? And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in every other place in the New Testament, what is the bride? The church. This is the church. You know what God is doing? God is removing their killers, their murderers, the Roman persecutors. He's going to remove them. And guess what? If somebody, if you are afraid somebody's going to knock on your door and take your wife out and put her in a coliseum with lions and all that, and you never know what's going to happen from day to day, that is torture. But guess what? When God removes all that, it's going to be like you're living in a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be a new situation. That city coming down out of heaven is described as a bride. Look at verse 9 and 10. Revelation 21, 9 and 10. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come hither and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the uh, spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Okay, verse 9, I'm going to show you the bride. And then what is he showing? The city. The city is the church. It's not heaven. It's a new situation for the church that's coming down from heaven, which is symbolic of the fact that God has given you victory over your killers. God has given you victory over those who were killing your loved ones and, and threatening your lives as well. And it's coming down out of heaven. It says in verse 10 that also descending out of heaven. How is this phrase used in the Old Testament? New heavens and new earth. Is that literal in the Old Testament? In Isaiah 65, is that literal? If it's literal, when it's talking about no more crying, does that sound familiar? Revelation 21, 4. Isaiah 65 uses that language. There's going to be new heaven and new earth, and you'll stop crying. But then you know what he goes on to say? And the child shall die at 100 years old. 
new heavens and new earth. But Isaiah, you're saying people are still dying? Yeah, we're not talking about heaven. We're talking about a new situation for God's people. God was going to bring them out of Babylonian captivity. And the Messiah was coming. And so in Isaiah 65, verse 17, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered. Does that sound familiar? That's Revelation 21, 4. The former things are passed away. He's quoting from Isaiah. And Isaiah is not talking about heaven. In verse 20, he's saying it will be a blessing because people will live to be 100 years old. Isaiah 65, 20. So studying these Old Testament prophets is going to help us understand what John's talking about. The bride of the church. <coughs> arbitrarily switch from figurative to literal. What about in Revelation 22, 20? Surely I come quickly. Do you think that's a different coming from verse 7? Behold, I come quickly. No, there's no reason to assume it's a different coming. But look what verse 6 says. 22.6, Revelation 22.6. And he said, Lord, These things are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the Holy Prophet sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. And I'm coming quickly. I'm coming to punish your persecutors. I'm coming to go to war against Domitian. I'm coming quickly. If that's talking about the second coming of Christ, we're 2,000 years away from the time of John. That, that, that's not very quick. There's more than one coming of Christ mentioned in the Bible. In fact, Jesus told the seven churches, some of them, uh, repent or else I will come unto thee and remove thy candlestick. It's not the literal return of Christ. In Isaiah 19, 1, it says, The Lord will ride upon a swift cloud into Egypt. What's that talking about? The final day of judgment? Christ coming in the clouds? No. It's using that kind of imagery, but it's talking about God punishing Egypt. Things which must shortly come to pass. Scripture reading was... Verses 1 through 3. In both verse 1 and verse 3, he gives you the time frame. The time's at hand. When Jesus said the kingdom is at hand, did he mean it? When John said the kingdom is at hand in Matthew 3 2, did he mean it's coming right now, almost, it's almost here? Yeah. But now when we get to John in Revelation, oh, well, that doesn't mean that it was almost time. That you, how can you do that? You're not being consistent. In Revelation 22, we read verse 6. Look at verse 10. Revelation 22, verse 10. And he said that may seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like Daniel 8, 26. I hope you left your marker at Daniel. Look at Daniel 8, 26. Well, the judgment, I'm sorry, let's see, 826. 
And the vision of the evening and the morning which is told is true, therefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So Daniel close up this prophecy because it's going to be a long time before this is fulfilled. And yet John says, do not. John still don't see because it's not going to be long. What we're reading about in the book of Revelation was getting ready to happen when John wrote the letter to the seven churches of Asia. And he told us in the first chapter twice, and he told us in the last chapter twice, and several times in the last chapter, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Now, last thing we want to look at, that we've been in Daniel 7. Right, in Daniel 7, remember we said there's the four beasts. What this chapter is talking about is basically the punishment of that fourth beast. Punishment of Rome. Look at verse 10, Daniel 7. See if this sounds familiar. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set. And the books were opened. Wow, that's Revelation 20, verse 12. Right there. And guess what? Verse 11 says, I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even until the beast, remember that beast from chapter 17 in Revelation? The beast was slain, and guess what? His body is destroyed and given to the burning flame, cast into the lake of fire is what chapter 20 Revelation says, this is talking about the same thing Revelation's talking about, but somebody may say, well, this is the final judgment. No, it's not. Look at the next verse. Verse 12, Daniel 7. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Guess what? The other beasts are not completely gone. If that's the final day of judgment, why hasn't all of that been removed? Because it's not the final day of judgment. It's judgment upon the woman that sits upon many waters. It's judgment upon Rome. It's being foretold 600 years before it came to pass. Now, what's going to happen after all this takes place? God is going to punish the wicked, but he's going to bless the righteous. And so the church, remember Daniel 2, the stone cut out without hands that struck the feet of the image grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. That's the Lord's church. There are Christians right now, even 2,000 years later, all over this globe. That's what Daniel 2 was talking about. And yet in Daniel 7, he's still talking about that. Um, there's lots of verses we can read to prove that. I'm trying to speed up a little bit. But go down to 26 and 27. Daniel 7, 26 and 27. <coughs> but the judgment shall sit. There's that word, judgment. And they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it. And to the end, that's talking about the beast. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven 
shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That sounds like Daniel 2, 44 and 45. Those other kingdoms are going to fade away, but God's kingdom stands forever, all over the earth. And to this day, it still stands. Where's Rome? Gone. Where's Babylon? Gone. Where's Medo-Persia? Gone. Where's the Grecian Empire? The way it was before, it's all gone. But God's <coughs> kingdom remains. And look at verse 27. Under the whole heaven. Not in heaven. <coughs> because this is not the final judgment. God's people under the whole heaven are going to be blessed and cover the whole earth when Rome is long gone. And that's what <coughs> the book of Revelation is talking about. And that's why John said in the first chapter and the last chapter, these things are about to take place. And if you understand Daniel and Ezekiel and other of the Old Testament prophets, then you're going to understand the type of language that I'm using, and you're going to understand I'm not talking about literalism. I'm not talking about literally the final day of judgment. We got other passages for that. That's what Matthew 25 is about, and Mark chapter 9, and 1 Thessalonians 5, and 2 Peter 3, and passage after passage. So we're not saying there's no such thing as going to heaven. I'm saying that John said that's not what this is about. And I'm saying Daniel said, that's not what this is about. It's about victory over Rome. Short of coming to pass, it's not about the destruction of Jerusalem. The letters were sent to Asia, not Jerusalem. Emperor worship is addressed. Babylon is not talking about Jerusalem. That's the pagans. Harlot sits on seven mountains, that's Rome. Roman kings we just talked about. The city that reigns over the kings of the earth, that's not Jerusalem reigning over all the kings of the earth, that's Rome. Place of thriving commerce, that's Rome. Fall emitted by the whole world, that's Rome. And then when you look at this right here, like we showed those four beasts, and then Revelation 13, and then look at this. Daniel 7 says this. All throughout the whole book of Revelation, it's quoting from Daniel 7. Question. Is Daniel 7 talking about Rome? And judgment upon Rome? And after the judgment upon Rome, God's people will be under the whole heaven? Yes. Then that is what Revelation is talking about because it's all the same thing. It's all the same language. From the beginning to the end, it's one message, one revelation. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Christians, you're going to suffer at the hands of the Romans. Don't you worry. I'm coming. I am at war with your enemy, and I am the king of kings, and I don't lose. You're going to be just fine, and even if you are beheaded for the cause of Christ, you will reign completely you will be just fine. I know I may have caused more questions in your mind than perhaps answers, maybe. But in that very first verse, you either believe what John said or you don't. When he said it was shortly going to come to pass, you either believe it or you don't. When he said the time's at hand, you either believe it or you don't. 
And in chapter 22, verse 6, time is at hand. You either believe it or you don't. In uh, 22, verse 10, same thing. If we believe what John said, we're not talking about literal final day of judgment, heaven and hell. we got other passages for that. Tonight, have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Throughout history, God foretold the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Tonight, before the Lord's Supper, we read from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, from 1000 B.C., they have pierced my hands and my feet. That's amazing. Because they weren't crucifying people back then. You got all of these prophecies. Finally, Christ comes and he fulfills all those prophecies and many more. And now God says, you must obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Christ died on the cross. We must die to sin. Romans 6, 1 and 2. We should be willing to confess our faith before others. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 8, 37. And then we can be buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 6, 3-5. Could it get any simpler? And yet the world wants to make it complicated. Friends, it's simple. But you've got to be willing to change, and many people are not willing to do that. Believe in Christ and be willing to take up your cross, to put those selfish, sinful desires aside and love Him, serve Him. God loves you. We love you. If you need to obey the gospel, if you need to come back to faithfulness, please come as we stand.